All right, we're getting into this topic. We're continuing this series about the cross of Jesus atonement. I was rehearsing it yesterday and I looked over at Lindsay and I said, this is complicated. And she was asleep. So, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to go today. This is a, this is a really challenging thing, especially a challenging thing to talk about in 25 minutes. So we're going to give it a go though. We're in Colossians 2. If you want to turn your Bible there, you can, but we're going to start in Judges 16. You don't need to turn your Bible there. It's a story, you know. In Judges 16, we find the story of Samson, this mighty warrior, this servant of God with this superhuman strength. And as you go through his story, he has some ups and downs. He does some good stuff. He does some bad stuff. He trusts the wrong girl. He gets in trouble, right? But at the very end of his life, when he's blind, he's taken into the temple. And remember, he asked to be set near a column, the columns of the temple, and he reaches out his hands. And with his super strength, he pushes aside those columns and the temple falls down on the Philistines, the enemies of the Lord. So even in his last breath, as he dies, he destroys the enemies of the Lord. Now, if you were to pay close attention to Judges 16, you would catch what Christian thinkers from really early in the history of the church caught when they read that story after the death of Jesus. They realized that the author of Judges 16 goes into this really great detail about Samson with his right arm outstretched one way and his left arm outstretched the other. As I hold my arms that way, why do you think it resonated with them? I mean, it reminded them of the cross. Okay, this man, this servant of the Lord, who in his last breath defeats the enemies of the Lord. Now we're talking about metaphor and symbolism. That stuff's not in the text of Judges itself, but it meant a lot to the early church. And so you kind of ask yourself, why did that mean so much to the early church? Why was that a good metaphor for what happens at the cross of Jesus? And when you're asking that question, what you're ultimately asking is a question about atonement which is a fancy word that means how did the cross change things between God and us and what needed to be changed in the first place? Okay, to begin to answer that question, look at Colossians 2 verse 13, where Paul writes this, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now pay attention here. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Where? By the cross. Okay, in that first part of the passage, you have what we would typically call the substitution idea of atonement. Chris, Chris preached about this last week. Basically, it, it is that we have sin that is a charge against us, okay? A charge potentially from God, that God cancels that charge that we owe. He forgives that debt we could not pay by the death of his son. Okay, that's the first idea. But Paul's not really strict about adhering to one idea of atonement versus the other. They just bleed together. And in the second part of this passage, particularly at the end of 14 and bleeding over into verse 15, is this other atonement idea that we would call Christ the victor, Christus victor, Christ the victorious. Okay. But here's the thing. 
that a lot of people have asked for a long time. And that is, how can the cross, where this happened, remember, by the cross, how can the cross possibly be victorious? I mean, the cross is an instrument of torture, an instrument of humiliation. How can it possibly be victorious? Some of you have probably seen this picture before. This is the earliest picture of Jesus that we probably have. It's taken from a wall in Rome, a plaster wall, where somebody took a knife or something like that and carved this picture into the wall. On the left, you see the, the actual picture itself, and on the right, you see a, uh, you know, basically like a sketch of it, okay, so that you can make sense of it. You'll notice it's somebody on a cross, right? But look at their head. It's the head of a donkey. It's the head of a donkey. And beneath the guy on the cross is another guy with his arms outstretched. And the caption reads, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos worships his God. Okay, you know that other word for donkey? You know how it's kind of like funny growing up to call somebody a donkey because there's this other word for donkey? That joke is as old as Jesus, right? It has always been humiliated to be a donkey. And that's what this guy who inscribed this, this insult, this this um, insult against Alexamenos, that's what he's saying. Alexamenos, the guy you worship, is a donkey. And we know that because he died on a cross. And a cross is where thieves and scoundrels and donkeys, those kind of people, die. Nobody thought the cross was victorious. Nobody did. And yet right here, in the New Testament, Paul seems to imply that something otherworldly is happening on the cross. That Jesus is triumphing over something on the cross. So let's start by asking, well, what is Jesus triumphing over? Um, in, in summer, the first year we had summer homework, we had to read Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. Has anybody read Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology? Let me just stop and say, when did summer homework become okay? You know, like I fundamentally reject you should have homework on the summer. You know, in the summer. Okay. But anyways, we had to read Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. I don't remember a lot from Greek mythology. But one thing I do remember is how Hercules dies. Does anybody remember this? Hercules is the, the half god, half human, son of Zeus. He's got super strength, much like Samson. Do you remember how he dies? There's this centaur, and you never can trust a centaur who dies and in his last breath, he takes the shirt off of his back that's covered in poison and he gives it to Hercules' wife. And Hercules' wife gives Hercules this shirt covered in blood and poison. Hercules puts the shirt on and it begins to eat him alive because it's a poisonous shirt. And he claws at the shirt, but he just can't get it off. And eventually he takes Hercules' life. The centaur, his name is Nessus. And this is called the Nessus Robe, And it has its own Wikipedia page. It's this, this major theme that shows up in all kinds of literature. This garment that is wrapped around us so tight we can't get it off and it's suffocating the life out of us like a straitjacket. Let me grab that image and say that I think it captures what Paul is talking about here in Colossians. It's a really useful image for describing what Paul is discussing here in Colossians 2. When he says that we are dead in our sin, that's how the passage starts. The idea there is that sin is wrapped around us, suffocating the life out of us. 
Sin isn't just a bad decision I make that may hurt me or may hurt somebody else. It is literally a power that is wrapped around me like a shirt I can't get off and is suffocating the life out of me. Okay, so Paul calls that power, that garment wrapped around you, he calls it here the powers and authorities. Leslie Newbingen, he was a, a legendary missionary. He said, the language of powers and authorities in this passage and others is one that when we're reading through it, we just skip right over that as modern people. But that language, powers, authorities, rulers, spirits of this dark age, powers of the dark world, as Paul says in Ephesians, that language, Leslie said, is covered all over the New Testament. He says it's on almost every page of the New Testament, the powers and authorities, which is to say the people of Jesus' time were really paying attention to forces that we couldn't see, but that were influencing the world around us, including Jesus. Okay, but what do those powers look like? You know, you might say, Eric, that's kind of a, a big idea. Can you prove it? All right, I'll try. So the classic example of what these powers look like or evidence that there are forces we don't see that influence the world around us. The classic example, and I've used this elsewhere, is the mob mentality. Okay, you get a bunch of people together and suddenly they're willing to do things they wouldn't do otherwise. We've all seen that play out. You might also call this peer pressure, peer pressure. Okay, the thing about the peer pressure or mob mentality about both of those forces is that you cannot see them. You can't reach out and touch the mob mentality. You can't see the force of peer pressure tapping on the shoulder of some high school girl at a party who's about to make a decision she's gonna regret for the rest of her life. You can't see peer pressure tapping on her shoulder, but those forces are so real that social scientists study them, write papers about them. That is to say the secular world acknowledges those forces exist. I read an article about Larry Nasser, who was the former doctor at Michigan State University who abused countless young girls under the guise of medical treatment. And I was reading this article about that and the, uh, this, this quote stuck out to me. It was from the lawyer who first brought charges against, against Nasser. She made two points. The first she says, if, if good adults would have stood up to Nasser and done what should have been done, uh, 20 years ago, she said so many girls would not have been victimized. So many, if good people would have stood up. But then she said, now with greater force, this is her quote, many are turning their attention to the institutional dynamics. That's the word she used, the institutional dynamics that led to the greatest sexual assault scandal in history, the institutional dynamics. It was when I read that word institutional dynamics, that phrase, that it almost took my breath away as I was preparing this sermon. We think about dynamics, you think about science class, and you've got these small particles in an atom and this energy that is bouncing between those smallest particles. And we call that dynamics, right? dynamics. That there's this force that exists between things in the created world, okay, causing those things to bounce about and do different things. I don't know that this lawyer realizes, you know, she gets some things a lot better than I'll ever get, but she is also putting her finger on something the Bible identifies over 2,000 years ago. That there are forces in this world, like there are in Michigan State University, causing good people to look the other way when they shouldn't, and allowing a bad man to do terrible things to innocent people. Right? Institutional dynamics, it's just 
wrapped up in that university. As hard as that is to swallow, and I think we can all acknowledge, yeah, I get that. But as hard as that is to swallow, it may be harder to swallow is that those forces are created by Jesus himself. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 16, just a chapter before this. He says that all of the created world, including the powers and authorities, are created by Jesus and for Jesus' purposes. That is, they are created for good. So think about an organization like Hope Works or Agape or even this church. We think there are institutional dynamics at work when we come together, right? We call that the Holy Spirit. No, we think there is a force that comes together when you and I are joined together, a force that is different, enabling us to do more than we would be able to on our own. See the same thing in organizations like Hope Works and Agape. And so it makes sense that God would endow the world with forces like that to bring about his purposes on this world. The problem is that the created powers and authorities, just like the created humanity, rebels against the God that made them. That's the story of scripture. And so you have, just like us, those who rebel in the garden and then rebel from there on out, these powers and authorities that are unseen, that were created by God to do God's purposes and now don't do them. Now they do what they want to do. And the greatest of those powers is the power of sin. What sin is, is the power of freedom created by God, poisoned and taken to its logical extreme. That's what sin is. It is our freedom run rampant. Uh, David Foster Wallace, legendary author, not a Christian, he talked about the freedom we have. And he said, the freedom we have inspires us to worship all kinds of things. He says, we worship money and beauty and intellect and power. And he says, worshiping all those things doesn't just make us fragile and exhausted. He said, quote, they eat you alive. He said, and he's not even a Christian. They eat you alive. Which reminds me of Hercules. And that shirt that's wrapped around him with poison on it, suffocating the life out of him. Okay, and so that's the thing in the New Testament. Paul says it like this. The wages of sin is what? Death is death. The wages of sin is death. And that's where the cross of Jesus becomes so important because like Chris talked about last week, one way to understand that line, the wages of sin is death, is that death is the punishment for our bad decisions, our sin. But the other way of understanding that is that death is the destination sin is taking us, the place it's taking us where we don't want to go. You know, sin is wrapped around us like this garment that we can't get off. It is the chief power in the world. It's suffocating the life out of us. And it is tricking us by our God-given gift of freedom into worshiping things that are not God, things that will ultimately kill us. That's what sin's doing. Okay. You still with me? It's complicated. This was about the moment Lindsay nodded off, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. She didn't. Okay. That's one way the tightening grip of the powers that be, the powers we can't see, of understanding what happens to Jesus Christ. Okay, let me ask this question, see if you get it. There is one group that knows who Jesus is from the moment he arrives in the Gospels. Who is it? It's the demons. 
It's the demons. Okay, think about the last week of Jesus' life. You've got the crowds who on Palm Sunday are laying down palm branches as Jesus rides in on the donkey and they're celebrating because the king has arrived. And a week later, they're shouting what? Crucify him. Okay, think mob mentality. And then you have Pilate and you have these Jewish leaders who know that Jesus is innocent. Even Pilate admits that. And despite that, they are tightening their grip on Jesus. Think institutional dynamic. And so at the cross, what is happening and throughout Jesus's life is that those powers that we cannot see are tightening their grip around the one they know is the Messiah, the one they know is a threat to their power until on the cross, they finally snuff the life out of him. They finally win. Or so they think, right? Because what Paul says here is that it's at that moment when Jesus breathes his last on the cross that he triumphs over those powers. And that word triumph is the word they would use for a Roman general who comes back from war and he's victorious and he has all the slaves that he conquered in war and chains behind him and he takes a parade through the Roman city streets. That's the word here, triumph. How can the cross possibly be a victory parade? Uh, I'm a big fan of the show Stranger Things. Anybody else watch Stranger Things in here? Yeah, okay, a couple. Maybe you don't want to admit it. Uh, So Stranger Things, let me kind of set this up. It's about these young boys who are really into Dungeons and Dragons and video games, and they discover this other world that is laying over top or laid over top of their world, the little town of Hawkins, Indiana. And it's this world that they can't see for the most part, but that is influencing things all around them. This one boy, Will, in this, well, in this clip that we'll see in just a second, he walks outside one night out of the arcade. And it's just a dark night. He sees the, sees the sign for the arcade just spinning on the pole. And then he has this vision of the other world that's right there, although it can't be seen. Okay, let's watch this clip behind me. You can see it unfold. So here's Will. He's walking out. He sees the arcade sign. And then all of a sudden he sees this flash of this other world with this dark power. Okay, then it's the normal world. And then he sees this dark monster, this dark spirit in this other world. Okay, that's kind of terrifying, right? But it's a really, I'm convinced Stranger Things is about the gospel. At least I keep telling my wife that, that's why we watch it. It's a really good, it's like, baby, this is about Jesus, okay? This is a really good metaphor. This is a really good metaphor for what the New Testament is describing when it talks about the powers and authorities and what the New Testament and Paul in particular are talking about at the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, the moment he breathes his last, that it's right then when Jesus enters the domain where death is sovereign or thinks it's sovereign, where he enters that world that you and I don't normally see. I love this fresco. This is from a church in Istanbul and it shows this moment. Jesus has just breathed his last and he is charging through where? Those are the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. Notice that the doors of the gate are underneath Jesus' feet. There are those two gold doors that are kind of extending out under Jesus' feet. And he's grabbing Adam on his right and Eve on his left and he is pulling them out of the dominion of death. He's, He's rescuing them from the sovereignty of death. 
This, this picture is based on an idea in much of the church called the harrowing of hell. And, and it's this idea that in the three days Jesus is dead, he goes into hell and preaches to them and liberates them out of there. Well, those, it's based on some complicated passages in 1 Peter. You can't really draw up a whole narrative of what Jesus was up to for three days based on those passages. But symbolically, the harrowing of hell is exactly what happens when Jesus breathes his last on the cross. He allows the powers of this world to suffocate the life out of him like that garment of Hercules. He breathes his last, but it's only then at the moment where they think they have him that he in fact enters their domain and there his power is unmatched, right? And he knocks down the gates of hell and he takes that garment and he rips it from himself. Okay, remember when they find the empty tomb, what's laying there on the stone? Yeah, the, the garments of death, the linen garments that they wrapped him in. That's symbolism, y'all pay attention. He rips those garments from himself. Death no longer has any power over him. But then this is the great part. Not only does he rip those garments from himself, he comes to all of us who belong to him and he rips those garments away from us, right? Okay, that's the message just a few verses earlier in Colossians 2, starting in 11, where Paul talks about the circumcision that's happening. When circumcision is discussed in the New Testament, this is what it's talking about. Okay, it's not the physical circumcision that Jews endured for many, many years. It's talking about this old self, this garment that is wrapped around us that we can't get free of, that Jesus comes and cuts us out of. At the cross, he's like, let me help you with that. Like, let me liberate you from this thing you cannot get rid of yourself. Okay, it's as if somebody had come to Hercules in his last moment while he's writhing in pain and just cuts the shirt off. Right? And this is the message I would, I would share with those who've lost somebody recently. And our church has endured so much loss recently. It's that not only does Jesus stand at those gates right at the moment of his cross or at the, of his crucifixion, it's that Jesus is standing there eternally. Right. Spatially, I know that Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father. But um, practically, okay, what Jesus is doing at the moment we enter death is grabbing us by the hand and say, oh, oh no, don't go there. Come with me. Right? You, no, 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 no. You don't belong to death. You belong to me. You belong to me. Okay, that's the great news of the gospel. All right, I know this is a really complicated sermon, and I, I've tried to make it as simple as I can in 20 or so minutes, but um, that, was, that was a little bit hard to do. But as hard as it may be to understand the idea of Christ the victor, the victory over these powers that we can't see, but powers that are influencing the world around us, what's harder for us to understand, what's harder for us to believe is that we are not in control of our own lives. I mean, that's what's really hard, let's be honest. Like we, can, we can kind of nod our head to this idea that Christ is victorious in the powers, but we don't daily deal with the reality that we are not in control of our own lives. That there are powers out there suffocating the life out of us. That sin isn't just the bad decision I make in the privacy of my own home that doesn't hurt anybody that sin is this power wrapped around me like a shirt I can't get off, suffocating the life out of me. And every time I give in to that power, I am only empowering the powers and authorities, right? 
I'm only emboldening them to do more work in the world, to combat the Lord with more ferocity, right? Because I've given myself to them, even though I don't belong to them. I mean, that's what's really hard for us to understand. I mean, we think that we just make our own decisions. You know, we just choose. We can choose at any moment to do good or do bad. You know, we're not, we're not influenced by anything else outside of us. And we're just kind of talking about how the world is just marching on to be becoming better and better despite the school shootings and sexual assault and the opioid epidemic. We just keep convincing ourselves. We're just capable of willing ourselves to a better world right? and totally ignoring the fact that if we are going to be rescued, it is going to have to come from somewhere else, right? That we are not capable and that we are in bondage to something that is squeezing the life out of us. And we need rescue. Okay, it doesn't matter that you understand that Christ is the victor. He's the victor whether you get it or not, whether I get it or not. What matters is that you come to the point like Paul did, where you finally accept what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right, that's what matters. You don't have to understand the nuances of the Christus Victor atonement idea to be saved. All you have to do is to realize that you are weighed down by the power of sin. That it is wrapped around you and you cannot get it off until you reach out to that one who by his cross has all the power he needs to take it off of you. All that he needs. That's all that matters. If you haven't done that, I'd love to do it with you today. We do that in the waters of baptism behind me. That's how that garment is removed as you die with Jesus on that cross and are raised to new life with him. I'd love to talk to you about it or do it right now down here down front. We also have shepherds who will be in the back who'd love to pray with you. Will you stand as we finish in song? When peace like a river